long-term meditators, people who, you know, been practicing every morning for years and sometimes go to a retreat. There are many people like that. If they do one day of meditation, like six hours or so, there's what's called the down-regulation of the genes for inflammation. That means the genes that create inflammation throughout the body, which are at cause in a wide range of disorders, you know, arthritis, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, they go quiet. So you may know today's guest, Daniel Goleman, as the guy who wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence. It came out in 1995, kind of exploded into the public's consciousness, has sold, I don't know, a gazillion copies, been part of the curriculum now in thousands of schools, corporations. It basically introduced the idea that success in life, that successful outcomes, a successful life is not just about IQ. It's not about rote intelligence. It's about this thing he called EQ, emotional intelligence. Underneath that, running under sort of his exploration as a writer, as somebody who studied psychology academically, has been a decades-long devotion, fascination with meditation and meditative practices. And that led him down a rabbit hole of really exploring the landscape of meditation these days and looking fiercely at the science of what's true, what's not true, and revealing some pretty eye-opening outcomes about what meditation does and doesn't do for us, some myth-busting along the way as well. And a lot of that is all wrapped up in a new book called Altered Traits, which he did with Richard Davis. And I had a chance to sit down with him and really kind of dive deep into his background. I'm curious also how a, a kid from the sort of uh, central California farm country ended up in an ashram in India. And then what kind of brought him down the road to emotional intelligence and then this deep and lasting undercurrent fascination with meditation. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I was probably first exposed to you and your work through the phrase in the book, emotional intelligence, which I want to talk about a bit, but then I want to, I want to talk more about where your head is at now and sort of sure. what your current work has been around. But that came out, when, was that 2005 No, 1995. Ah, so I'm late by six, about 10, no, 10 years. Yeah. Man, it feels like it's, it's so interesting because it feels like it is so now. Well, it's penetrated into the culture in ways I never could have imagined. You know, when I wrote the book, people said, well, you can't use the word emotion mm. in a business context. Now business says, oh, emotional intelligence, it's a must-have. Yeah for leadership particularly, or schools. They call it social-emotional learning. The book really was an argument for teaching kids emotional skills, social skills, along with, you know, math. And yeah. yeah. Where did this come from, from you? What was the origin? Like, what made you say there's something else that's not being talked about here? I don't have a ready answer for that, you right. know, where it came from in me, but it felt right. And, you know, I've done maybe a dozen books, and every book has a kind of a, a point, a um, trying to make the world a little better place, maybe. Mm. So for those who may not be, for the, the three people who may not be familiar with <laughs> the work around emotional intelligence, four kind of main elements of this, can you sort of give me Sure. Like emotional intelligence is a different way of being smart. It's not yeah. what we're rewarded for in school, you know, your IQ essentially, but rather what kind of person are you? Are you self-aware? Do you handle yourself well? Can you empathize? Can you put that together in relationship and have you know strong connections? Those are the four elements of emotional intelligence. We don't teach that to people in school, mm. but it's really a key to success in life, whether it's your personal life, you know, you want to be with someone like that, or whether it's your life in business or your whatever career you choose. I just saw data that was kind of a surprise to me at the same time, maybe not. Engineers, software writers, study of 40 of them, it turned out that success as evaluated by their peers, people who know them very well, correlated zero with IQ, hmm. correlated very highly with their emotional intelligence. Which is not necessarily a trait you associate with coders. People are certainly behind not the screen. Not at all, nor yeah. does the tech culture value yeah, it. But right. what it says is, you know, everybody who's a coder or an engineer has a master's, or at least they're that smart yeah. to be in the trade. And that means you have an IQ of around 115, 120. But now you're in a pool of people who are as smart as you are. So IQ has very little predictive value in what discriminates the best from the worst. It's can you be on a team? Can you influence people? Mm. Can you work well with other people? Can you handle your own whims, desires, impulses, and stay focused. That's all in the emotional intelligence 
part of of your abilities. Yeah, which really contradicts the lore of Silicon Valley and the lore of the entire tech industry, which is like you know, you are. It's all about your product, your output. <laughs> I was I was surprised. I was asked to give a talk at Google many years ago. Yeah. And the guy who asked me wanted me to talk on emotional intelligence. I said, okay, I'll do that. But I didn't think people would come. But the, the room was packed <laughs> and like, there were- I'll talk you know, to all three people. <laughs> yeah. But I was shocked. It was really popular. They're you know, putting it in other rooms with TV screens and stuff. And, and then he used that. Meng was his name. He mm. used oh, that. Oh, Cheng Meng. Cheng Meng. Yeah. Uh, Meng Chadon is his name. Yeah, yeah, same guy. He used that to create a course in Google University- on emotional intelligence and mindfulness, which I thought was very smart. Mm. And he integrated mindfulness with emotional intelligence, which is a natural anyway. Yeah. And then he wrote a book which became a bestseller about right. it. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting to me is, that, and I feel like I'm actually curious because you know the answer to this. I feel like the term caught on. It became this giant phenomenon. And it kind of caught fire in more of a business setting. And you were talking about how it's still spoken about in the you know, context of education and kids and stuff like that. Have you seen it genuinely integrated into curriculums and educational experiences in sort of younger life? Well, first of all, I see business as adult education. It's all education. <laughs> it's just right. older people. It's probably debatable. Yeah, so right. Yeah. <laughs> or at least HR and the courses yeah, they yeah, use yeah. for development. and. Emotional intelligence, partly because of the Harvard Business Review. Mm. I did an article years ago on emotional intelligence and leadership. It became their most requested reprint in the history. Of no the, kidding. Yeah, I was huh. astonished. And they've been putting out a regular stream of publications on emotional intelligence ever since. There's, there's a ready audience for it in business. Yeah. And now in schools, there are thousands of schools that integrate into their regular classroom day some version of what we call social-emotional learning. It's not necessarily under that title. In yeah, fact, it's almost never. But in effect, what they're doing is teaching kids how to handle your impulses, you know, how, how to empathize, how to get along. Mm. And kids love it, by the way, because it deals with the real issues of their lives. Like, you know, how can you say no to someone who wants you to use drugs and keep your friends? Mm. This is like vitally important yeah, to a middle school kid. Yeah. yeah. And also just, I mean, navigating middle school, <laughs> you know, and yeah. understanding how do you create a genuine sense of friendship and relationship and belonging, but also keep the essence of who you are. And because it seems like there's this big window of time with kids where so much is about just fitting in and they don't have the skills to really understand the deeper social dynamic around that. Well, that happens around sixth grade. Hmm. There's, uh, the developmental psychologists have this down to a science. Yeah. You know, early in life, anyone who's been a parent knows this, early mm. in life for kids, it's all about your parents and your family. And over the elementary school years, that tends to wane. By middle school, forget your family, it's your friends. Mm. And it's fitting in with your friends, as you say. Well, that's a first time in your life challenge. And so social-emotional learning helps kids with what matters to them most which is, well, how can I keep my own integrity and be friends with the kids I want to be friends with? How can I handle the fact that they didn't invite me to that party? Mm. What do you do with that? You know, these are the melodramas of life that social emotional learning helps kids master. I was just in a school, though, um, in Spanish Harlem, right next to the projects and the FDR expressway there. It's uh, 
very poor neighborhood. And uh, it was a seven-year-old classroom, and they have social-emotional learning. I thought it would be pretty chaotic. Half the kids are what they call special needs. And the kids were very calm and focused. And the teacher said, here's why. Then they went through a session of what they call breathing buddies. Hmm. Every kid would get their favorite stuffed animal, little animal, find a place to lie down on a rug, put it on their belly, and watch it rise mm-hmm. on the in-breath and fall on the out-breath. Rise on the in-breath and fall on the out-breath. Well, this is a basic attention training exercise. You could call it mindfulness. But what it's doing to their brains is strengthening the circuitry for paying attention and for calming down upsetting emotions. It's the same circuit. Mm. So you get a twofer. And you know, my argument has always been, why aren't we helping every kid with this? Because this is a skill for life. Yeah, I so agree with that. You know, as you were sharing that, I, I had this memory of I owned a, a yoga center and we had we offered kids classes, similar age actually. Oh. And I remember vividly parents dropping off their kids and then they'd come back about five minutes early and then be peeking in the room and they'd see the kids because we did something really similar, kind of all just lying back on a right. mat, yeah. you know, in a circle and with like a little, like either a bean bag or something right. Right. and just kind of focusing. And the parents were like, what drug did you give them? Because we try and make this happen yes. at home yes. all the time. And the kids are, we can't get them to stop bouncing off the walls. Like what happened here? Like it, it was inconceivable that their child could access that state. And yet they can. And you know what? It works for adults too. Yeah. We could all use a little bit of focusing and calming. In this book, um, Altered Traits that I did with Richard Davidson yeah. just coming out. We looked at the strongest studies on meditation, we found even from the beginning, you get benefit for concentration, which is that focus, and your amygdala, which is the part of the brain which flips out when you get upset, calms down under stress. So that same thing you see with the kids that you saw in your yoga classroom happens with adults when they start mindfulness or any kind of meditation. Mm. And I actually want to go layers deeper into that with you, but I want to take a little bit of a step back in time sure. first. You've had kind of a fascinating journey. From what I know, and again, tell me this if this mm-hmm. is right, pretty much grew up um, in like a part of California that's, I've never heard of anyone right, growing exactly. up, but it's like, it's kind of like farmland in central California. It's the Central Valley of California. Yeah. It's a farm area. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the place where when I've driven from LA to San Francisco, it's like all... You'll go along the side of it on Highway 5. Okay. You go in the foothills. If you were to turn right, which I don't recommend, you go into Central <laughs> Valley. For me, it was idyllic. It was kind of a Norman Rockwell yeah. childhood. But these days, it's not such a pleasant area. Mm, how come? Then it what was changed? great. A lot of gangs there, Uh, a lot of violence. The city I grew up in, Stockton, is bankrupt, has trouble paying cops and things like that. And uh, the secret, though, was that it was like an hour and a half or less to Berkeley. Mm. It's just inland from the Bay Area. So I was really focused toward what was happening in the Bay Area, which at that time was very exciting. Like what? Tell me. What was going on? Uh, Well, my older sisters were there for the beatnik days. Uh, I was there for the summer of love. Right. 50 years. This this summer. This summer, yeah. yeah. But that was my childhood. Right. And that was a big influence. So were you back and forth fairly regularly? As much as I could. (laughs) (laughs) So from there... Part of the bridge that I would love to sort of like know the story behind is mm-hmm. how do you go from there? Because the, the undercurrent of all the emotional intelligence work, at least it seems, 
and a lot of your work. You know, eventually you become a writer and you're very mm -hmm. prolific and written many books. But it seems to be a deep fascination around meditation and on so many right. different levels. Right. Where does that touch down? Well, it started with my bar mitzvah. Okay. <laughs> my, my sister gave me a book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which was a collection of Zen stories. And it just blew me away. I had never even imagined that there were methods like Zen or that people had experiences that took them out of their ordinary awareness and were transcendent. And when I got to college, I was very interested. And I looked into different kinds of med I started meditating in college, frankly, because I was anxious and it helped me calm down. Mm. And when I got to graduate school, I turned out at Harvard, I entered the same program that Leary and Alpert had been booted out of five years before. And I was interested in consciousness, which was like nobody there wanted anyone interested in consciousness. Right. Well, they kind of made a statement by with what happened with you know, Alpert. Well, they could, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. But, you know, I actually got a traveling fellowship, pre-doctoral traveling fellowship to India. And I made it my business to look up yogis and lamas and swamis because I wanted to know, you know, what happens. And what I realized was that Western psychology did not have an understanding of the upside potential of human being. I was in a program in clinical psychology. We were looking at what was wrong with people, mm. not what could be right or how right could you be. And these Eastern psychologies, and they were psychological systems, uh, had definite maps of how you could be equanimous, how you could be loving, how you could be present that we didn't know about in the West. And I thought this was very important. So I came back to Harvard and I said, hey, you know, there are these ancient systems of psychology that extend the map and they were not interested at all. But I managed to do my dissertation on meditation and stress reactivity, hmm. which was okay because it was right. physiological. There was some sort of like application. That well, was yeah, it was practical, Yeah, you know. And back then, a, fr a friend of mine, actually the, the, my fellow co-author, Richard Davidson, right. he and I were friends in graduate school. He did his dissertation on how meditation trains attention. But they didn't want to hear about the meditation part. And it took years and years for the traction to occur in society that we now, you know, mindfulness everywhere. Yeah. You know, meditation is something that's just like going to the gym. It's not something exotic. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me because it, it sounds like, when were you in Harvard? When were you doing, when was your- like, Early 70s. Okay. Is that then around the same time? No, it's probably a little bit earlier than Seligman starts to- Earlier. Or it's earlier. Yeah. Right. He, he did positive psychology in the 90s. It, it was that much later. Yeah. Wow, man, it feels like it's been around for a yeah. while now. But that gave another conceptual platform right. for Eastern psychologies, for meditation, for doing like yoga, doing things that helped improve the quality of being, not just get over our, the worst things, depression and anxiety, but actually cultivate positive states. Yeah. Well, that was a radical idea at one point. Yeah, and clearly when you were doing it, it's pretty radical too. But it's interesting because it, it does seem like the predominant culture was always, and to this day, I think it's shifting a lot, but I still feel like the predominant sort of lens is, focuses on how do we investigate how to move people from ill, sick, anxious, depressed to baseline. I think positive psychology, you know, has has gone a long way in sort of shining the spotlight on baseline to flourishing. But my sense is that's still not the driving energy within sort of like the bigger context. Of well, psychology. it depends what part of psychology you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking at psychotherapy, by definition, 
Right. That's helping people go from the worst states to okayness. Yeah. But if you look at like meditation, mindfulness, positive psychology itself, many varieties of ways to boost your being, they're taking people from okayness to even better mm. or trying. Yeah. So you end up in India. What happens there? Well, in India, I was lucky enough to be with someone who you may have heard of. Uh, do you know who Ramdas is? Sure. So Ramdas wrote a book called Be Here Now. Right. And he mentioned the old man in the blanket, mm. Maharaji. Right. Neem Kroli Baba. Neem Kroli Baba. Right. So I was with Neem Kroli Baba. Uh. And Neem Kroli Baba was kind of ideal type of what was possible through consciousness change for the better. He was, many people would call him enlightened. He was loving. He was super present. He had an aura around him, which was contagious. A friend of mine, Larry Brilliant, who was with him, put it this way. He said, the miracle wasn't that when I was with him, I loved Maharaji. The miracle was that I loved everybody else too. Mm. So his quality of being really infiltrated you. But for me, it was an inspiration in terms of what is possible for human potential. What could we possibly be like? Then I went to Bodh Gaya, India, which is where the Buddha was enlightened, right. the big Buddha center. And there I studied meditations like mindfulness and its more advanced level insight meditation. And I saw texts that date from the fifth century that describe very matter-of-factly what you can do in meditation that will help you become like Neem Kroli Baba, mm -hmm. presumably, or you know, they have other language for it. And it was that that I tried to bring back to psychology. I, I was just about a couple decades too soon. <laughs> when you first discovered these texts, did you believe that there was sort of a linear path that would take me from point A to where Maharaji was? Because it seems like a big a, Yeah, a, a big path. Bite. I don't know if it's linear. You know those bases yeah. they have that are taken from <laughs> the medieval cathedrals. Yeah. I think it's more like that, where you start out one way and it looks like you're getting somewhere, then all of a sudden you circle right. back. And, you know, I, I don't know that it's a linear progression, but I, in the research we looked at in the book Altered Traits, and, you know, now there's 6,000 peer review studies of meditation. Mm. But my co-author, Richard Davidson, has very strict standards. He looked at the methodology and he said, maybe 1% are really strong. We'll mm. talk about those. Yeah. But it makes it very clear that the more you do, the greater the benefits become. There's a dose-response relationship. So right from the beginning of, say, mindfulness, people have benefits. They focus better. They're calmer. But he's been able to bring Olympic-level meditators over from Nepal and India, mainly Tibetan yogis. Flies them over, brings them to the brain lab, has them do different exercises and scans their brains. And the results are pretty astounding. And it suggests that something is going on here that we don't know of in our psychology, but should. For example, if you take one of the yogis and you look at their brain waves, you see something really interesting. Ordinarily, for me and maybe for you and, and listeners, when you get an insight like, oh, I just solved that problem I've been grappling with, or I realize what I should do with this thing, a creative insight, your brain shows a particular wave called a gamma for about a half second. It doesn't show up much otherwise, but it's very fleeting. These yogis are in gamma all the time. 
Hmm. I don't know how to interpret that, yeah. but it sounds really great. Right. And it's we've like never seen it before. Perpetual insight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, um, yeah. They describe it as a spaciousness, a presence, a readiness for whatever comes. Uh, they said there's really no words for it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you know this information, but is the gamma detectable at the moment that somebody would identify as the moment of insight or shortly before? Oh, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. Although it might be the moment before. Yeah, because I've seen some research where there is sort of like, there is a less than conscious awareness that something just happened before we even know yeah. that we've well, discovered it. This has to do with how the mind is constructed and yeah. the fact that the cognitive unconscious, where this work goes on, knows things before it presents it to us in awareness. So for that reason, I suspect it might show up just before we get the idea. Yeah. Before this research, would either of you have even guessed that it was possible to sustain a gamma brainwave state? No. No. And in fact, other scientists are just amazed. There's some other amazing findings that occurred. That you don't have to be Olympic level. Long-term meditators, people who you know have been practicing every morning for years and mm. sometimes go to a retreat. There are many people like that. If they do one day of meditation, like six hours or so, there's what's called the down-regulation of the genes for inflammation. That means the genes that create inflammation throughout the body, which are at cause in a wide range of disorders, you know, arthritis, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, they go quiet. This is what's called epigenetics. Epigenetics is understanding that it's not the genes you have, but whether you turn them on or off. So what they found is that a day of meditation turns them off. Well, that was a shock to people in genomic science. They didn't think that a, a day of any kind of mental activity would affect your gene activity mm. in the least. So along the way, there have been many discoveries that are eye-opening for science as we know it today. I think in the future, it'll be taken for granted. Yeah. Is, is there an understanding of why? Like in that example that you just gave, you know, like you sit for six hours or whatever, that meditation for six hours, it starts to affect you on an epigenetic level. Why? Is, is there an explanation or is that still an open question? Well, or, or I how think, maybe I think the specific mechanism is quite unknown. Yeah. But we do know there's a general correlation between mood states and health. Mm. And this may be one of the linkages that right uh, explains it because, yeah. yeah. And like sitting, Six hours, but spread out over 20 minutes a day for X number of days doesn't have the same effect. Doesn't seem to. So interesting. So it's, so it's not just dose dependent in terms of, you know, like this much every day for a long window of time. It seems like intense periods mixed in with that. It's almost like yeah. interval training. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the data so far seems to suggest that the benefits of meditation are enhanced by retreats, mm. full days a week, a month of continual meditation, which is like going to, you know, professional baseball players go to camp in Florida for this, right. to up their game. So why not the mental game? It's the same principle. It has to do with mastering expertise in any domain. You know, the, the 10,000 hour rule is kind of a meme that's around, it's a myth. Right. It's generally that the more hours you put in, the better you get. But the key difference is this. In any domain, meditation, chess, math, doesn't matter, golf, most amateurs improve their game to about 50 hours and then plateau. 
the pros, all the pros have coaches and they keep working on whatever it is they need to improve all their lives. And that's why they're at the top of the game. So the yogis, for example, that Davidson studied at Wisconsin, all had teachers. They have teachers continuously all their lives who are somewhere, you know, more advanced in what they're doing. Just like, uh, you know, professional singers, opera singers have voice coaches. Same thing. Mm. That's so interesting to hear you say that. And it makes perfect sense. I had the chance to uh, sit down with uh, Kay Anders Erickson, who was, you know, the source of the quote 10,000 hour, yeah, which, which we now know is. He's a little miffed at the 10,000 hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's like, look, that's not quite legit. That's not really what my research said. Yeah. But, but he's, he said the same thing. He's like the best of the best in any domain. He was really speaking to the role of the teacher. That's right. In the process. The because, expert coach. Yeah. Somebody who can look and, and sort of be a part of it and say, okay, we need to keep continually shifting how you're going about this right. so that it's not just showing up and doing it by rote, but actually saying, okay, how was that? And sort of like iterating on this. But in the context of meditation, I've almost heard that, yes, I've heard that a, that a teacher is important. And at the same time, I've always heard some variation of the instruction of most important thing to do is just show up and sit every day and don't judge the quality of any one given time on the mat. Yes. But you're saying that's... I'm saying both are true. Okay. I think it's very important to have a non-judgmental attitude toward a given meditation session. All kinds of things can happen. It's like when you go to the gym and you're going, say you're doing Nautilus machines and do these repetitions. Every time you do the repetition, you're strengthening the the muscle just a little bit. Mm. You may not enjoy it as much as you did yesterday doesn't matter. Same with meditation. Every time you focus on your breath and your breath wanders, you notice it wandered, you bring it back, you're strengthening a little bit the circuitry for concentration. It doesn't matter if you enjoy it or not, just that you do it. Mm. So that's true. On the other hand, a teacher in meditation might say, well, you've really got your concentration down. Let's see if you can gain more insight. Watch your thoughts come and go. Don't treat them as distractions. Well, that's a different instruction, and it needs to come at the right time, or it's helpful if it comes at the right time. And it turns out there are instructions like that all the way up the ladder. And I don't even know what the top of the ladder is, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, and it makes complete sense that when I think about the quality of my practice, so I sit daily, just a very fundamental breath-oriented mindfulness practice, Um, been doing it for since 2010. And I'm not in love with my practice. Like, like I don't sit and see and feel amazing. <laughs> no, know, it's is, not the point. This is not my experience. Nobody ever promised right. you'd feel and, amazing. They right. should promise you yeah, feel and, amazing. Yeah, and it took me a while to understand that, that that's okay. Yes, yes, exactly. And in fact, I was just talking to someone who said, you know, I tried to meditate, but I think my mind just goes crazy. I can't be a meditator. Hmm. And I said, you know, actually, that's the first major insight congratulations, because you're looking at your mind. We don't realize how busy our mind is all the time until we stop and look at it in meditation. Mm. And then, I don't know if this happened with you, Jonathan, it certainly happened to me. You realize your mind is wandering all the time. Yeah. That's the state. And meditation is the attempt to bring discipline to that mind. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers, outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn Ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work-focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So seasons change. So why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus, complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time, only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals, or just click the link in the show notes. So our awesome friends at FreshBooks make ridiculously easy cloud accounting software for freelancers and small business owners who know that making every single moment count is a really important part of getting a lot of stuff done and being able to do the things that they want to do in their business by drastically simplifying things like 
invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has totally changed the game for now more than 10 million people. You can link your FreshBooks account to your credit card and debit card. So next time you expense, you know, the business stuff or the tank of gas or lunch, it just shows up automatically. They have notifications and awesome customer service. To claim your month-long unrestricted free trial with no credit card required, go to freshbooks.com slash goodlife and enter the Good Life Project in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Uh, so how did you learn to meditate? You know, I, I came to meditation in a bit of an odd way. Um, I, I was teaching yoga for a number of years. So I took a number of workshops and had different teachers. And um, But I became pretty fascinated with yoga initially through meditation because in a very past life, I was a lawyer. And I was not handling it well. <laughs> um, and it was causing a massive amount of stress in my life. I ended up hospitalized, actually. And um, I was looking for ways to be okay in the, you know, the career that I had chosen at that window in time. And yoga was interesting to me. Meditation was something that I had always been kind of interested in, but never really got. And breathing, pranayama. So I started my, it's almost like my gateway drug was actually more pranayama. And I realized that I could very quickly come into a much more calm state through that. And that brought me to yoga, which brought me to meditation. But I dabbled in it. I never really embraced it until I was kind of forced to. 2010, I ended up with tinnitus. So, you know, like literally in the blink of an eye, just this loud high pitch ringing in my ears and I didn't handle it well. <laughs> um, I was one of the people that did not habituate well or easily and it was crushing me. So I started looking into my past and it turns out that kind of as a fluke too, I was working on a book on how people handle uncertainty. And, and one of the ways was mindfulness and meditation. And that turned me on to how mindfulness can help people process pain, sustain pain without the stimulus going away. The pain's still there, but you, you can train yourself to handle it better. And I wondered, could this also help me with the sound in my head? And um, that took me down a rabbit hole where I ended up kind of going back to certain teachers, going to a, a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist who also uh, had tinnitus and said, well, it could work. And then I, I kind of over time experimented because I realized I had to develop my own practice that would work with what I was moving through. So I tried a lot of things and ended up blending a blend of pranayama to get me to a place where I could actually be still and allow this thing to just surround me and be a part of me and not freak out with anxiety until finally I got to a point where I, I realized sitting one day and my mind had drifted from the sound. And that was the moment where I realized I was figuring it out. And from that day on, this it's a sustained practice. And for me, it's funny, I think, because, and I'm sure you've had this conversation too. So this is a daily practice. This is like brushing my teeth for me. And I, people ask me, like, how do you keep doing it? And for me, I have a daily reminder in my head of where things can go when I don't. Oh. And maybe I've habituated by now and I'd be fine without it. But it also became a gateway to so much other goodness that I don't want to give it up because so many of the benefits that you've talked about, you know, yeah. I've experienced in relationships, in life, in business. So I started meditating for very similar reasons. I was in college and I was anxious. Mm, yeah. And I found meditation, hey, it helps me be less anxious, which in turn helps you be more focused. And over time, I was pleased with the benefits, general benefits of the practice. And, you know, what we found looking at the literature 
One is just exactly what you mentioned. People who have chronic pain or chronic condition like tinnitus that is irritating and drives you crazy, who do mindfulness are able to do two things. Change your relationship to the irritant, to the pain, whatever it is, which is wonderful. You're not caught up by it and you're not reacting because of it. You're just saying, oh, it's there. And the other thing is that the amygdala, which is what goes nuts, it's the trigger for the fight or flight response, quiets down, calms down. So it's less reactive. So those two are very powerful. Mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was was developed by John Kabat-Zinn, another old friend from Cambridge, interestingly, is used very commonly now in medical settings to help people who have chronic pain. Because it doesn't take the physiological sensation away at all. It takes the emotional reaction away. Mm. And that's what makes all the difference. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It's interesting that you came to it from sort of like a similar angle originally. It's funny, it seems like you were, so you, John Kabat-Zinn, Richie Davis, not too outside of the window, Ram Dass, those guys. It's almost like you guys are like the mindfulness mafia from, from that time. It's like <laughs> well, we all saw the value very, right, very right. early. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what's interesting is it, it seems like like you've developed this research, and the, the research has been or the interest, in, and then that developed for you into writing and in depth study, and for various people, it's been expressed in different ways. And in the last, it feels like the last five years, there's been this major tipping point. And you write about this in Author Traits about the difference between deep and wide in sort of the way that meditation and mindfulness is, you know, like moving out into the world. And there's a plus and a minus to that, I guess. Well, first of all, what you mention as the kind of tipping point for mindfulness in society, you see it very clearly. So we reviewed all of the uh, academic studies, peer review literature studies, and we draw a curve of how many there were per year. Five years ago, it just went ballistic. There are now more than a thousand studies a year, scientific studies of meditation or mindfulness. And the question is deep or wide, as, as we put it in the book. And the deepest is the way these practices are done in their native setting, say in a monastery in Asia or an ashram in Asia. Then those methods have been brought to America and their meditation centers. Some things have been left behind but they're still pretty deep. And because some things have been left behind, some of which are culture-specific, more people have access to the methods. Then they've been taken outside the spiritual context totally. And in fact, the person who urged this was the Dalai Lama. Mm. He said to Richard Davidson, a meeting of the Mind and Life Dialogues, which, which he and I have helped organize for a long time. There's scientists meeting with Dalai Lama for around a particular topic. There was one on destructive emotions. And Dalai Lama says to Davidson, you know, our tradition has many methods that seem to work very well for managing destructive emotions. I urge you to take them outside the religious context, test them rigorously in the lab, and if they're a benefit to people, spread them very widely. And that's exactly what's been happening with the science. So Davidson was one of those who established that these methods work, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBCT that you did, those are variations of traditional methods 
that have been tweaked so that they're accessible to an even more wide range of people. And that's kind of level three. And level four, which is the widest, are like the apps. Mm. You know, the New York Times, the mindfulness tip for the day. Well, those go to far more people, but they they aren't as deep as the other methods. So it's kind of trade-off. And I see value in both. I think if these are a benefit, why not share them as widely as possible? And on the other hand, people who are doing them in, in the less deep way may not realize that they could go deeper. Mm-hmm. And some people who are doing the deep methods complain about that and say, well, they don't realize really what they're doing. But I can see the value of all, every level. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, it's almost like there's mindfulness shaming to a certain extent, you know, like between the people who've chosen to go deeper right. and those who stay surface, but also those who promote the wider yes. exposure. Like, right. I mean, I see it very similarly to you. I see, I see the wide as the point of entry for most people. And then a certain percentage of those people will be like, huh, there's something going on here with that. Maybe I didn't even expect it. I wonder what else is happening underneath the hood here. And you know, there's an imitation. And then the cool thing is that, yes, you can go deeper yes, if you exactly. want. But even at that surface level, there's, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, through the research that, that uh, you're talking about, there's benefit, you know, on the, the shallow and wide level. But it, it seems like there's a big bridge between that and you the know, deeper practice. I think that there's a continuum, actually. Yeah. And you you marched out that continuum by how many sheer hours with instruction that you put in. So anyone who starts at, at a very, you know, the widest level, gone to scale, the app, can progress if they want to. They could go to, um, say you're doing mindfulness, go to an Insight New York weekend. Mm. Go to Insight Meditation Center, do a week-long or 10-day retreat. And it gets richer and richer uh, the more you do. And that's so clear from the scientific data. Yeah. Is there a downside to the wide, the lighter practice? You know, mindfulness is beautiful because it allows you, at least in my experience, to see more clearly, you know, the the reality of your inner world and your outer world. It doesn't necessarily solve whatever you see, though. Well, and this is my fear. I think mindfulness at the widest level has been oversold. Uh. I was looking at a website recently on mindful leadership, and I looked at the studies that they cite as basis for claims they make. This is going to help you with this or that or your business performance. And the studies are not well done. They're bad studies, actually, from a methodological point of view. And yet they're used to hype the method. And what I fear is that people will get into, say, mindfulness at the widest level and be disappointed because nothing's, and that there will be a backlash and that people who are making exaggerated claims are kind of setting up that situation. Mm. I think people will benefit if they try these methods, but I'd like them to try it for the right reason, not the wrong. So what is the right reason in your mind? The right reasons are that uh, sound science has shown these are the benefits that will come to you. Or the right reason might be you've got a friend who's tried it and has benefited from it. In other words, something that for you is solid, not just an empty promise. Mm. So it's really individualized. One of the things also, there was, I want to say it was a couple months ago, there was a piece in the Times, but this is a conversation that I've actually had with people and a number of times 
and I'm curious where you, you stand with this. It's about the potential for mindfulness to end up in harm. So here's the way it's been described to me, that if somebody's been through trauma, deep, profound trauma earlier in their lives, they have, through whatever mechanism, developed the ability to cope. They've developed a whole set of things. They've never gone to therapy or processed it. They've just figured out how to be okay on an everyday basis. And somebody says, hey, there's, like mindfulness is awesome. You know, It'll help you with whatever. They start that practice, and through that practice, they begin to see more clearly that which they have not wanted to see or revisit on a regular basis. And it sort of drops them back into a world of darkness without necessarily the concomitant skills to understand how to process that. And that does happen sometimes, particularly on retreats. And uh, there's a woman at Brown University, Willoughby, Britain, who actually has a a project to counsel people like that. And um, I think that's very helpful. It's a very small minority, by the way, who experience Mm. that. I know a fellow in uh, Washington, D.C., who had PTSD as a result of service in Iraq, and after that was in the Pentagon right where the plane hit on 9-11. And in an instant, he was under a heap of rubble, which saved his life. Everyone else in that office died. So he was doubly traumatized. Mm. He had terrible PTSD. And he he couldn't go to the mall. He couldn't go in an elevator. He, he uh, had very bad symptoms. He tried mindfulness. He went to a mindfulness retreat, and he couldn't stay inside where everyone else was. He stayed in a pup tent. But slowly he got into it, and he said what helped him the most was loving-kindness practice. Oh, that's interesting. And now he's a therapist in D.C., Steve Zappala, and he specializes in other vets who have PTSD, and he helps them with that practice. So it's a mixed picture when it comes to trauma. It can be therapeutic. The thing about Willoughby's project is that you have to understand most people, the vast majority of people who do deep meditation don't have dark nights, we call them. yeah. And people can go to a freshman year in college or boot camp and have a dark night. We don't know what the baseline is, in other words. About a third of Americans have some kind of diagnosable mental illness. So it's very hard to differentiate what's due to the meditation, what would happen anyway. We just don't know. There's a lot to find out. But I'm glad she's doing what she's doing. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. Yeah, and it also makes me feel like given proper resources and proper understanding of either access to people to help or tools to help. If there is something that emerges from this process, like where do I go and what do I do with this? It's not that the mindfulness is causing harm. It's that it's sort of like it's creating an experience where stuff that is probably really you know good to deal with is is finally emerging coming up but you've yeah. got to understand where do i go from there exactly and yeah. it's not just mindfulness you're going to need other yeah. therapeutic tools for right sure. you mentioned your friend with ptsd there's a phenomenon post-traumatic growth post-traumatic so, growth. growth right so you know it, it turns out that some people who go through horrific experiences like that end up with ptsd or some variation of like deep profound trauma and can't take themselves out of that. And others process it in a radically different way where it becomes a source of profound growth for them. Um, curious whether you're, you're aware of or you've been exposed to any of the work around whether meditation or mindfulness 
might in any way be involved in sort of like the difference between the, those two ways of processing trauma? I don't know. Huh. It's a wonderful thought. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that it would be, but... Um, Possibly. That's so interesting. Among the research that you've done and with the book that you guys have come out with now, you shared some of the really interesting, kind of surprising research. Is there anything else that really jumped out at you? It's like, wow, we did not see this coming. Oh, you know, I just did a, a list of 57 <laughs> findings from the so book. So there's yes, a lot. <laughs> Each of them a good reason to meditate. Yeah. So I think I've told you the two that really pop out, the, one, the genomic finding. Yeah. Wow, who expected that? And then the gamma and the pain in the yogis. No pain, no... Nah. And then gamma all the time. That's astounding. Another thing that surprised us and pleased us was that loving kindness practice, where you systematically wish well to people that have been kind to you, to yourself, to the people you love, people you know, a wider people in the city, people beyond, finally everyone, actually seems to strengthen the circuitry for, it's the same circuitry as a parent's love for a child. It's a circuitry for concern, caring, and compassion in the brain. And it makes you more likely to actually help people. And this happens very quickly. You start seeing it right at the beginning of practice. And it, we think that the brain is prepared to learn to love. And that's, for us, that was both a surprise and, and very pleasing. Mm. That's certainly a nice thing to think about in in this day and age, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know, where I think we uh, yeah. we need as as much of that as possible. One of the things I've been curious about also is so the origins of the practice across many different traditions, whether it's mindfulness or the, mm -hmm. like, so many different ways to approach meditative practices. Very often has been attached to an aspiration, whether you know you call it samadhi, bliss, enlightenment, whatever it may be. And that's been, yeah, I know you're not supposed to sort of like say there's an attachment to an outcome when you're along any of these paths, but it's kind of like everybody's working towards that thing. And this is one of the ways that you get there is developing this practice. And the there has been described as having so many profound benefits. Have you found in the research that any of the states that would be described in classic literature and associated with like, Samadhi Enlightenment, this thing, are validated scientifically in any way. So our book is called Altered Traits, and we're actually not that interested in the states. Mm. We're interested in the lasting effects on your very being. Every spiritual tradition that has meditation, and by the way, that includes every major religion. Mm. Yeah. You know, there were Christian monks in the Egyptian desert in the second century who were basically look like to, like yogis in the Himalayas today. They're doing, they had a, what, a mala, they had beads, and they're doing a mantra kiriye liaison. They, they had to go to uh, Mount Athos when the Muslim invasion came. But it's the same unbroken tradition in, in Christianity. Mm. There are Jewish meditations, there's Islamic meditations, there's Hindu, there's Buddhist. Every major religion has it. But was kind of paradoxical, actually, and when we looked at the research. the Every tradition says the key to this deep change is stepping out of your everyday self into a transcendent being. That may or may not mean samadhi, 
but it does mean you're less self-focused and you're more open to the needs of others. That's one of the trait changes that we find. And the paradox for us was that was the least interesting to researchers. Hmm. Researchers are happy to look at how your concentration improves, how you get calmer, how you get more loving, less selfish, uh, not so interested. There are only like three or four studies we could find that bore on that. And yet, if you look in the traditions themselves, they talk about uh, in yoga tradition from the small self to the big S self, in Buddhism from the small self to the non-self. Right. There may not be a difference, who knows, but it's, the directionality is very clear. And so we're looking at traits because what we realized is that all of the spiritual traditions are talking about a being which is less concerned with selfish things, my this, my that, more open to other beings, more calm, more equanimous, more generous, more focused, more present. And it seemed to us that those are overlooked largely in our culture, but there's intrinsic value in that mode of being. So it was the trait changes we were looking for, mm. not the states. And a lot of those traditions will say, for example, if you look at Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra, sure. or you look at the Vasudhimagga, that 5th century meditation text, I said, they both treat samadhi or concentrative highs as nice, but not the point. It's interesting. The point is who you are after you leave the cave. Mm. Yeah. Before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. <laughs> after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. You just feel differently about it. Yeah. Which also describes coming full circle. You know, when you show up in India and you see Maharaji sitting there and there's just something. Exactly. Yeah. I think we all want to feel that way when it comes down to it. If we could close our eyes and say, I want to move through whatever I move through on a daily basis and I want some of that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we all get some of that. Yeah. I, which makes me curious why that part of it is the least research part of it. I wonder if it's because it's the least tangible, sellable, valuable in a business context, yeah. you know, like exactly. publishable. <laughs> I, I think that the research reflects the underlying value system yeah, yeah. of the culture. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Unfortunate, though. It's important that we know it. Yeah. yeah. So this feels like a good place to come full circle, actually. So the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer out the phrase, to live a good life, comes up exactly the traits i mentioned being more equanimous being more present being kinder and more generous all of those traits lasting traits of beings i think embody a good life mm. thank you pleasure jonathan and as we wrap up i want to give a final shout out to our awesome sponsors and supporters RX Bar for Kids, Chocolate Chip, Apple Cinnamon, Raisin, and Berry Blast. Find them at Target stores or for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar slash goodlife and enter the promo goodlife at checkout. Audible is my go-to place to find audiobooks. As a Good Life Project listener, you can now get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash goodlife. Right now, you can post a job on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash good. Today's show is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is a super cool cloud accounting software. 
to claim your month-long unrestricted free trial with no credit card required, go to freshbooks.com slash goodlife and enter the Good Life Project in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's life, take a moment and whatever app you're using, just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing, whatever is easiest for you. And then of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together collectively because that's how we rise. When stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And I would love to invite you to participate on that level. Thank you so much, as always, for your intention, for your attention, for your heart. And um, I wish you only the best. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors, Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right, what the reward is, what's at the end, and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you wanna get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you've set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAST Creative.
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with Acast Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.